Well, good morning. My name's Dave. I'm one of the pastors here. And just grateful that you're all here this morning joining us. Or if you're joining us online, glad to have you with us as well. Well, today we are in part three of our four-part series in the book of Ruth. And if you've not been following along with us yet, let me give us a quick recap of where we've been. In chapter one, a man from Bethlehem named Elimelech, along with his wife Naomi and their two sons, they sell the family farm and they move to the nation of Moab because of a famine that's been taking place in Bethlehem. Elimelech, or when the family gets to Moab, Elimelech dies. And the two sons, they marry Moabite women, one of whom is Ruth. But after 10 years of trying, neither couple is able to conceive any children, and then both of the sons die. Naomi then returns to Bethlehem with Ruth after hearing that the famine is over, but she returns bitter, holding God responsible for all of the suffering that she has endured. That introduced us to the concept of God's sovereignty or his providence, which says that God is in control of all of life's events, including our suffering, but it also says that God is orchestrating everything for his purposes. He is guiding it all towards the good outcomes that he has planned for his world. In chapter 2, we saw how God is also sovereign in our good fortune when he surreptitiously directed Ruth's steps exactly where he wanted them to go, to the field of Boaz, an upstanding man in the community who also just happens to be a relative of Naomi's husband, Elimelech, and is a guardian redeemer. A guardian redeemer is a clan member responsible for restoring the family's fortunes through buying back the land like the farm Elimelech had sold out of his poverty. By the end of chapter 2, it has become clear to Naomi that God is behind all the, the fortunate coincidences that have happened to her and Ruth, so she no longer toils in bitterness, but now rejoices proclaiming that he has not stopped showing his kindness to the living and the dead. We've also learned how that word kindness is used throughout this book. It is the Hebrew word chesed, which conveys loyalty and sacrificial love. And this is a major theme throughout the book of Ruth. And one of the main ways that God shows his chesed in this world is through the choices and actions of his followers. We've seen this especially in Ruth, who had the chance for a fresh start in Moab, but instead chose to cast her lot in with Naomi and return with her to Bethlehem. Ruth took a huge risk that day. In Bethlehem, she would have lived as a foreigner from a hated enemy nation. In the patriarchal setting of that day, as a woman without a father or brother or a husband or son, she had no security. And both she and Naomi had no resources either. Before moving to Moab, Elimelech would have sold the family farm, so when they arrive back in Bethlehem, Ruth is forced to glean so that the two of them can have something to eat and just survive. Gleaning means picking through the leftovers of a field after the harvesters have already gone through it. But throughout this story, we have seen 
how Ruth is not averse to risk. She's a bold and courageous woman. And today we'll see that Naomi, she's not afraid to conspire in some risky business of her own. You see, the two of them, they are not satisfied with the status quo, not for themselves and not for each other. And so they both throw caution into the wind. And just as God's hand was guiding them in their suffering in chapter 1 and their good fortune in chapter 2, today in chapter 3, we see that Yahweh continues to steer the plans of these two widows because God is also sovereign in our risks. We're going to be going through this chapter bit by bit, so the passage will be on the screen, but I also invite you to turn in your Bibles with me to Ruth chapter 3. At the end of chapter 2, we had our hopes raised. Not only do Naomi and Ruth have food to eat, but it seems like they might have a future. The revelation that Ruth has been working in Boaz's field and that he's a family guardian redeemer leaves us anticipating a greater redemption for Ruth and Naomi. But then the chapter ended on a flat note, saying in verse 23, so Ruth stayed close to the women of Boaz to glean until the barley and wheat harvests were finished, and she lived with her mother-in-law. That's it. Life just went back to working in the fields and these two widows rooming together. We expect more. And so would the story's original audience. Isn't this usually the point in the story where the hero rides in like Prince Charming, makes some grand gesture and sweeps these damsels in distress off their feet? That's how it's in the fairy tales and in the movies. But this is real life. And as often as the case in real life, things return to the ordinary, the mundane, and the familiar. Relationships are complicated. They're risky business that even cause valiant men to shy away. However, it couldn't stop a mother from getting involved. Verse 1. One day Ruth's mother-in-law, Naomi, said to her, My daughter... I must find a home for you where you will be well provided for. Now Boaz, with whose women you have worked, is a relative of ours. Tonight he will be winnowing barley on the threshing floor. Wash, put on perfume, get dressed in your best clothes. Then go down to the threshing floor. But don't let him know that you are there until he has finished eating and drinking. When he lies down, Note the place where he is lying. Then go, uncover his feet, and lie down, and he will tell you what to do. Now this is quite the risky plan that Naomi has cooked up. But before we get into the details, we need to admire the reason why Naomi is doing this. It is because she loves Ruth. Ruth has been a blessing to Naomi in a world of hurt that she has faced. Ruth has been her comfort, her provider. Ruth has been Naomi's healer. But Naomi knows that Ruth faces an uncertain future. You see, Naomi is old, and when she dies, Ruth will be left all alone, a barren, widowed woman in a foreign land without any security. And so 
Like the widow that Jesus admires in the temple courts who poured out her last penny into the temple coffers, here, Naomi, she is willing to give up all that she has, sacrificing Ruth's companionship in order to secure Ruth's future. And a secure future for a woman in that society was found in marriage. If Naomi's plan succeeds, she will be left all alone. But she takes this risk to show Ruth chesed, self-sacrificing love and loyalty. To us, Boaz seems like the ideal candidate and solution for Ruth's singleness, and for, Noah, for Naomi as well. But probably she sees him as the ideal candidate for very different reasons than we do. We assume that Boaz is the most eligible bachelor in town. But the Bible doesn't tell us that he's single. We just assume that he is. However, it is very, very unlikely that a mature man of Boaz's standing, wealth, and character is a bachelor. Not because Boaz couldn't be unlucky in love, but because romance and love were not the driving forces for getting married in Israel. Marriages were arranged in order to provide security for the women and to provide a legacy for the man. Now, Boaz may have been single, but it is more likely that he is already married with children or possibly a widower. Now, I understand how this idea that he is already married with kids may distort the picture that many of us have of this account of this being a romance story. But there is far more important things that are going on here than romance. And if Boaz is already married with children, which is more than a possibility, it makes what he does later on in the story far, far greater. Now, some of you might be wondering, isn't having more than one spouse a sin? Most of the time, yes, it is. Polygamy, having more than one spouse at a time, strays away from God's design for marriage, which is to be between one man and one woman for life. But polygamy was practiced in Israel and even promoted in certain cases, such as Leverite marriage. And the kind of marriage that, if you remember, Naomi alluded to back in chapter 1. You may recall from the sermon there, I explained that Leverite marriage was when a man married his dead brother's or his dead relative's widow if they hadn't had children already, even if that living brother was already married. The Leverite marriage took place in order to have children with the widowed sister-in-law, and the first son they conceived would be considered the dead brother-in-law's heir. That way, the dead man's legacy would live on, and his widow would be cared for by the living brother. This law was an exception to God's design for marriage, but it was enacted out of compassion. So, is this the reason... Naomi thinks Boaz would be the ideal solution for Ruth because he could provide her with an heir 
for her dead husband, and in turn, for Naomi's husband, Elimelech, his legacy would live on? No. Though Boaz is a guardian redeemer, it wasn't the guardian redeemer's job to enter into Leverite marriage. That was the duty of a brother. Naomi does not see Boaz as the answer to Ruth's problem of security because he's the guardian redeemer. Naomi grounds her idea of Boaz being the best solution based solely on the fact that he is a relative. She says that in verse 2. He is our relative. She's, you see, despite how heroic Ruth is, she does not have a lot going on for her in terms of being desirable for marriage according to the standards of that day. Remember, she is a poor, foreign widow who everyone believes is infertile, having been barren for the 10 years, first 10 years of her marriage. But as a clan member, as a member of the extended family, Naomi believes that Boaz would more likely be receptive to a marriage proposal from Ruth than someone outside of the clan. So her plan is risky indeed. However, there are still some things that the two of them can do to tilt some things more in their favor. Naomi's done her homework. She knows just where Boaz will be that night. He's going to be at the threshing floor where he will be winnowing the harvest. So the timing is perfect. Not only is this when they will process the cut barley into grain, but it's also a special occasion. So they will celebrate the end of the harvest with a banquet. They will have good food and drink. And so Naomi tells Ruth to approach Boaz only after he has feasted, ensuring that he will be in a good mood. Note to any of the children in the room to approach your father or mother only after they have feasted when you ask them for things, ensuring they will be in a good mood. Naomi also instructs Ruth to make herself as attractive as she can be. Take a bath, spray on some perfume so that you smell alluring, and put your best clothes on. Now, chances are Ruth has been wearing mourner's clothes. We don't often see this in our culture, but I remember seeing this uh, when I was a child, when my neighbor's spouse died. And whenever she would, the, the living widow would go out for the rest of the year, all she ever wore was black. Ruth likely did something similar, but Naomi tells her, not tonight. Tonight, Ruth is to present herself as available and enchanting. Naomi leaves nothing to chant, and she is as calculating and as careful as she can be in order to obtain a favorable outcome. The plan is a carefully thought out one, but it is still risky. Or should I say, it's risque. In verse 4, Naomi lays bare the crucial part of the plan, and her words are tantalizingly ambiguous. And they're full of suggestive innuendo. She says, when he lies down, note the place where he lie, is lying. Then go and uncover his feet and lie down with him. He will tell you what to do. 
Ruth is to note the place where Boaz lies down because there are going to be other people who are at the threshing floor winnowing barley that night. Boaz and the others, they will all spend the night there in order to guard the freshly processed grain. And so Ruth is to make sure she sees exactly where Boaz lies down before it gets too dark. Otherwise, this could be incredibly embarrassing if she approaches the wrong man with the scheme that Naomi has cooked up. To uncover his feet and lie down with him doesn't sound too suggestive to most of us. But for a woman in Israelite society, to uncover a man who wasn't her husband and to lie down beside him has an immoral ring to it, and such behavior would have been forbidden. Naomi probably has Ruth uncovering more than just his feet, but probably his legs, not just his feet, so that the cold night air would stir Boaz awake, but also it would make her intentions obvious. Ruth is proposing marriage to Boaz through these provocative actions. The sexual overtones of this passage are deliberate, and it would have captivated the book's original audience's attention. We should be asking ourselves, what was Naomi thinking, sending her daughter-in-law out in the night dressed like this? Rather than keeping her out of harm's way, it looks like Naomi is throwing Ruth to the wolves. There is so much that could go wrong with her plan. Ruth could mistakenly lie down next to somebody else. She could be seen approaching Boaz and the accusations would fly. Or Boaz could mock her, charge her with sexual impropriety. If he were a lesser man, he might take advantage of her for his own pleasure and then humiliate and slander her. But Naomi trusts the character of Boaz. And more than that, as we have seen again and again in this story, Naomi believes in the sovereignty of God. He has been sovereign in her suffering, in their good fortune, and here she shows us that she trusts God is also sovereign in their risks. Naomi is modeling how God and his people often work together. We are not supposed to just always wait for events to happen. Rather, we must seize the initiative when the opportunity presents itself. And we cannot always have a contingency plan for all of the potential dangers we face before we take some action either. At some point, you and I, we have to step out in faith. We have to take risks and trust that God will help us along the way, that he is going to be sovereign in our risks too. Now, Naomi loves Ruth, but knows in order to help her, she cannot shield Ruth from all the dangers and threats. And Ruth also trusts Naomi, and she is willing to face the risks. In verse 5, Ruth says, I will do whatever you say, she answered. So she went down to the threshing floor and did everything her mother-in-law had told her to do. And when Boaz had finished eating and drinking and it was in good spirits, he went over to lie down at the far end of the grain pile. Ruth approached quietly, uncovered his feet, and lay down. Notice where Boaz lies down. It's at that far end of the grain pile where there would be fewer prying eyes, where there would be fewer people to overhear, 
whispered conversations. Can we just chalk that up? The fact that he lies, he just so happens to lie down at the far end of the grain pile or for, to good luck for Ruth? Wow. Fat chance, right? Of course not. Once again, this is Yahweh's hand guiding things. He is sovereign in her good fortune, but also in her risk. Then Ruth implements Naomi's plan. She uncovers Boaz and she lays down. And then verse 8 says, In the middle of the night, something startled the man. He turned and there was a woman lying at his feet. Who are you? He asked. I am your servant Ruth, she said. Spread the corner of your garment over me since you are a guardian redeemer of our family. Now, this is a really important and risky move that Ruth makes here. First of all, she actually deviates from Naomi's instructions. Naomi told her to go and uncover his feet and lie down and wait for him to tell you what to do. But as we've seen before, Ruth is a woman who likes to take the initiative. And though Naomi will be satisfied to secure Ruth by finding her a husband, Ruth will not be satisfied in leaving Naomi behind. When Ruth tells Boaz to spread the corner of his garment over her, she is not asking him to share the blankets. She is proposing marriage, and she is reminding Boaz of the very words he spoke to her back in chapter 2, verse 12. He said, May the Lord repay you for what you have done. May you be richly rewarded by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. You see, the word for wings and the word for corner of a garment, these are the same word in Hebrews. In Hebrew. In effect, Ruth is saying to Boaz, you remember how you prayed that Yahweh would reward and protect me? Well, Boaz, here is how you can answer your own prayer. Marry me. Ruth is telling Boaz and us that we are often the answer to the prayers that we pray. We are often the answers to the prayers that we pray. When we pray to God, that someone would receive some encouragement. We are often the answer to the prayer that we prayed. When we pray to the Lord that that person would be provided for, we are often the answer to the prayer we are praying. Sometimes we're not just the petitioner. Sometimes we are the provisioner of our prayers. Ruth also brings up the fact that Boaz is a guardian redeemer of the family. But again, that had nothing to do with marriage. That had to do with redeeming the land. So is Ruth confusing him being a guardian redeemer with the Leverite marriage I spoke of earlier? Perhaps because she's a Moabite, she doesn't understand Jewish law. Hardly. Remember back in chapter 2, how Ruth was not satisfied with the gleaning laws that only granted her the right to glean after the harvesters and binders had already stripped the land of the grain and left only scraps? 
There, she proposes something radical to Boaz, to let her glean right behind the harvesters. And he praises her for her boldness that is motivated by her love for Naomi. Here, Ruth is doing it again. Here, she is subverting or calculating something new and bolder. When she invokes the guardian redeemer custom, it is this unexpected and brilliant legal twist. She is appealing to both Leverite marriage and the guardian redeemer laws by putting both marriage and land together. Ruth makes her intentions clear. She wants Boaz to redeem Elimelech's land, but also to bear a child with her who will inherit it. If her plan succeeds, Ruth will then have rescued Naomi's family. Not only will the family farm be bought back, but if they are able to conceive a child, Elimelech's legacy will no longer be lost. According to Leverite laws, the child will legally be considered Elimelech's heir and in turn, Naomi's as well. This plan of Ruth's, it's astonishing. She risks her reputation. She risks refusal, public embarrassment, old wounds being reopened by trying to conceive again after already having lost a 10-year battle with infertility. And she is also asking Boaz to risk a great deal too. If Boaz agrees, he risks upsetting the peace at home by bringing in another wife if he is already married. And to redeem the land, Boaz is going to have to pay for it to be returned, but also he's going to have to invest more just to get it up and running. Now, some of you might see this possible land acquisition as an enticing uh, investment, you know, some short-term pain for some long-term gain because Boaz would double the amount of land that he owns and potentially have more money coming in from two working farms. But what we may not realize is that if Ruth is able to conceive a son for him, that child will inherit the redeemed property. And in effect, it will belong to Elimelech's estate and legacy, not Boaz's. To redeem it, Boaz is going to have to siphon off funds from his own estate, in effect leaving his children's inheritance and his legacy with less. This is an astonishing thing that Ruth asks him to do. But just as Ruth inspired Boaz to new heights of sacrifice in chapter 2 with gleaning, she inspires him to do the same thing here with his estate and legacy. He responds in verse, in verse 10, The Lord bless you, my daughter. This kindness is greater than that which you showed earlier. You have not run after younger men, whether rich or poor. And now, my daughter, don't be afraid. I will do for you all you ask. All the people of my town know that you are, are a woman of noble character. Boaz sees what Ruth is proposing is all out of loyalty and love for Naomi. It's Hesed. When he says, this kindness is greater than that which you showed earlier, 
The one earlier that he is referring to is the scene in chapter 1 when Ruth forsook her own well-being and came with Naomi to Bethlehem. When he says, you've not run after younger men, whether rich or poor, Boaz is not suggesting that Ruth prefers older men like him. He's saying she didn't pursue marriage for love or money. Rather, by proposing to him as the kinsman redeemer, Ruth prioritized her family's needs. She sought security for Naomi rather than just pursue her own happiness. Ruth's plan was risky, not only because it put her future in jeopardy, but because it demands this huge sacrifice from Boaz. Amazingly, he is willing to be her co-conspirator in this risky venture because he once again is inspired by her acts of hesed. And he praises Ruth, saying that everyone knows that she is a woman of noble character. They are both people of amazing character. And so this night, when the two of them come face to face under the cover of darkness in the most tempting of scenarios, Boaz, he's feeling good, you know, full of food and drink. Ruth, she's smelling good and she's looking even better. Not only do they maintain their sexual integrity, but they make a pact to put their faith into action and once again to throw caution into the wind. No one would have blamed Boaz for putting the brakes on Ruth's plans, right? He could have explained to her, all that he had to lose, and he might have proposed a more cautious approach rather than this huge gamble. But friends, sometimes caution can be a symptom of faithlessness while risk-taking is a sign of our trust in God's sovereignty. It would be great if the chapter ended here and then next week we pick things up with the planning of the wedding. But like any good story, there's always a twist. In verse 12, Boaz continues, Although it is true that I'm a guardian redeemer of our family, there is another who is more closely related than I. Stay here for the night, and in the morning, if he wants to do his duty as your guardian redeemer, good, let him redeem you. But if he's not willing, as surely as the Lord lives, I will do it. Lie here until morning. I don't know if you're reading this like I am. I'm like, are you kidding me? Can't Ruth catch a break? But here's the thing. She doesn't need to catch a break. God's hand has been guiding and directing Ruth and her efforts this whole time. And what's really one more obstacle? If anything, it continues to underscore the work of God's providence in her situation. Boaz's commitment assures Ruth that whether it's this closer relative or him, one way or another, Ruth's plan is going to come into effect. Either this, closely, this more closely related man will marry her and redeem them, or Boaz will do it. And if Boaz does end up being the one to marry Ruth, it means that God was responsible for it. Only Yahweh could overcome all the obstacles that have laid in their path. Verse 14. So she lay at his feet until morning, but got up before anyone could be recognized. And he said, no one must know that a woman came to the threshing floor. 
He also said, bring me the shawl that you are wearing and hold it out. When she did so, he poured into it six measures of barley and placed the bundle on her. Then he went back to town. When Ruth came to her mother-in-law, Naomi asked, how did it go, my daughter? Then she told her everything Boaz had done for her and added, he gave me these six measures of barley saying, don't go back, into, don't go back to your mother-in-law empty-handed. Then Naomi said, wait, my daughter, until you find out what happens, for the man will not rest until the matter is settled today. Now this last scene is a very uh, fitting way to bring these events to a close. Things started out this morning with Naomi making plans to secure Ruth's future, and now Ruth returns to her. Can you imagine how anxiously Naomi has been sitting around waiting on pins and needles to find out what happened all night. And what a surprise for her when Ruth returns and not only tells Naomi that indeed Boaz has agreed to marry her, but that he has also agreed to the new plan, to rescue Naomi as well. Oh, except there's a hitch. There's another kinsman redeemer who's a closer relative. I can just see Naomi's face as Ruth is telling her all that happened that night, especially the part where she went off script and proposed that Boaz not only marry her, but also redeem Naomi and the farm. At first, Naomi's face would have had this look of surprise, quickly followed by a look of skepticism. You see, Naomi certainly would have known, just as Boaz, that there was another guardian redeemer who was a closer relative who was first in line. You see, if Naomi's priority had been redeeming herself, then she would have sent Ruth to that man. But Naomi sent Ruth to Boaz because he was a man of integrity and Naomi was not thinking of her own welfare. Rather, she was thinking of Ruth's. In next, next week's message, we're going to learn a little bit more about that closer relative but I think we already know something about his character. If he was the guardian redeemer who is responsible for redeeming the land and rescuing his relatives, why has he not done it already? Whereas Boaz, in contrast, he has no obligation. Yet he has consistently shown that he is a man of mercy and compassion who is willing to care for others at great cost to himself. We just read how in this final act of generosity, before Ruth returns home, Boaz loads her up with six measures of barley so that she does not return to Naomi empty-handed. So that she does not return to Naomi empty-handed. Anybody remember Naomi's accusations against Yahweh in chapter 1? She said to him there, I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Naomi's cupboards are full now. Reversing the effects of the famine that took her from Bethlehem in the first place, not only that, this gift of seed is also the perfect symbolic gift of Boaz's intentions to marry Ruth and the prospect of a potential offspring that would secure Naomi's future and the family's legacy 
which meant everything to her. I think in her heart, Naomi is once again repeating those words from chapter 220. He has not stopped showing his kindness to the living and the dead. I've said several times this morning that God is sovereign in our risks. And if we're at all tempted to, you know, object to being risk takers, let us remember that following Jesus is inherently risky. Jesus took a huge risk coming to earth to live as a man, to show God's way and to invite us into his kingdom. Christ risked his welfare. He risked his relationships and his life, all because Christ trusted that God is sovereign in the risks. Of course, some people will dismiss this saying as God himself. It really wasn't a risk for Jesus. Those same people may even accuse me of heresy for saying that Christ took a risk. But I think we underappreciate Jesus' humanity when we forget how he felt anger at injustice, sadness at loss, fear in the face of suffering, even though he knew how all those things would turn out as well. Jesus felt all of this because he was fully human. He experienced the full range of human emotions, including how risky it is to trust and follow God. And when Jesus invites other people to follow him, he told them it would come at great cost to them too. He said they would have to risk their comfort, their relationships. They might even have to risk their very lives. So for any of us who would count ourselves as followers of Christ, taking risks is an essential part of the package. There's no way around it. It's a requirement of all of us who call him Lord and Savior. But remember, God is sovereign in the risks. At first glance, Jesus' risks, they looked like failure when he died on the cross. Yet God used his crucifixion to forgive us of our sins, and then he glorified Christ, raising him from the dead, and then enthroning him as king of all kings, with the name above all names. So when you and I are tempted to avoid risk-taking for our faith because we fear failure, we need to remember the cross and to remember that God can take what looks like a failure and transform it into a triumph. We're never going to be able to manage all of life's risks, but you and I can take them because God is sovereign over our risks. Risk-taking can be a sign of our trust in God's sovereignty. And don't forget that each one of us, initially, we all took a risk when we put our faith in Christ in the first place. And we don't stop as we continue to follow him every day on the journey. We keep trusting him. We keep risking. And if any of you are thinking of putting your hope in Jesus today, let me encourage you to take that risk, to put your faith in him. It is the best decision you would ever make. And I would love to talk with you and pray with you after the service. But as we give our attention to the risks that God's spirit is leading you and I to take, there are a few things from this passage I think that we need to consider First, like Naomi, we should 
diligently plan and strategize as best we can. However, we cannot allow all of life's uncertainties to stop us from stepping out in faith. Naomi's plan was full of uncertainty, especially for Ruth. But at some point, we need to realize we cannot mitigate all the potential threats. We need to trust God. We need to step out in faith. We need to take risks. Second, just like Ruth points out to Boaz, we need to recognize that we are often the answers to the prayers we are praying for other people. We are often the answers to the prayers we're praying for other people. God's hand, his sovereign hand, is guiding all of life's events, but he has chosen to partner with us in doing his will. And so we need to ask God to raise our awareness of what our responsibility is in his provision for answering prayers. And then finally, like Boaz, we're going, to need, or we're going to need to recognize that participating with other people in God's plans requires costly sacrifice and uncertainty. Partnering with other people in God's plans requires sacrifice and uncertainty. I love how in this story, the older, more well-established Boaz jumps on board with the bold plans of the young Ruth who doesn't have two nickels to rub together. And he never treats her condescendingly. He never suggests that as an established male Israelite that he knows better than her. Instead, he throws her, his lot in with her not knowing exactly where this will go or how it's going to turn out, but he's willing to use all of his privilege, his authority, his wealth, and his standing to empower her in seeking Yahweh's will. Their teaming up, quite frankly, inspires me, and it gives me a vision for our church. You know, last spring, I attended a conference by two of our ministry partners that they put on together that revealed the results of a survey that shared how young people urgently want to stand with their church on climate change. Young people, young Christians want to stand with their church on climate change. In fact, this study shows that 92% of young believers believe that this is an essential discipleship issue and critical to the mission of the church. Now, before any of us start thinking that this has nothing to do with the book of Ruth, let me remind us that this all started with a famine that started all this turmoil in Naomi's life and that one of the main reasons we're doing this series is to answer the question, is God good for women? And one of the primary drivers of famine or the hunger crisis in our world, it's climate change. And both the hunger crisis and climate change disproportionately affect the poor, most of whom are women and children. And so the question, does the church care about climate change, this goes hand in hand with the question, is God good for women? Now most of the people I know who are passionate and ready to take risks mobilizing the church to play a role in the climate change crisis are young people. Ruth types. They're 
idealists, ready to boldly push the boundaries of what's acceptable or comfortable. They see their participation in this issue, in creation care, as God's work at hand, and or God's hand at work, and they're okay with rolling up their sleeves and getting involved in some ways that many of us could never imagine. But what they need most are people like Boaz. They need well-established older Christians who are willing to jump on board with them and courageously take risks with them. They need people to partner with even if it requires costly sacrifice and uncertainty about how things are going to turn out. What young risk takers don't need are partners who treat them condescendingly or like they know better. Instead, what they need are siblings in God's family who are willing to use all of their privilege, their wealth, their standing to empower them in seeking Yahweh's will for caring for the creation and the world that God so loves. And I hope that we are a church that is full of Ruth types. I hope we are a church that is full of courageous young Christians who challenge us to take risks, to address things like climate change or other justice issues or other important issues that are facing us. And I also hope that we are a church that is full of mature Christians like Boaz, who will not only champion the risky initiatives of the young, but who will also count the cost and jump on board with them. You see, this following Jesus stuff, it's risky business. But thank God that he is sovereign in our risks. I want to invite the worship team to come on up. And would you stand with me and let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you so much that in you we move and live and have our being. Thank you that no matter what situation we face, no matter where we go, that your spirit goes with us. That God, you are one who lives inside of us. Thank you that you call us to be your partner people and that you use us despite our failings and our fears. Lord, you still call us to step out in faith and that everything we need that you can provide us with, even the courage to do what we never thought possible. Thank you, Lord, that you've given us one another, each with different gifts and abilities to partner together in the work that you are doing in this world. Lord, we pray that you would help us to be, to be strong and courageous, that you would call us forward into the work that you are doing into this world and that we would faithfully follow you and that you would bring your kingdom come here on earth as it is in heaven. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.